the seats there. We are in the prophet Joel, or Joel, depending on how you want to pronounce it. If you get to the book of Ezekiel, keep on going, and you will eventually find Daniel, and then you'll find Hosea, and there tucked in is the prophet Joel, one of those prophets that you can go past quite easily and wonder, where is he? I thought he was in here. Um, So hopefully you'll have found him uh, as you come this morning to the Word of God. We're in the second chapter this morning, and we're going to read together from the 18th verse. Joel chapter 2, and we will commence to read together from verse 18. This is the Word of the Lord. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea, and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Not, o land, fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Amen. Let's pray together. Let's ask the Lord's blessing as we come to his word this morning. Heavenly Father, how privileged we are to have the Bible in our own language. How sweet it is to be able to gather together and to read it and to hear it explained. We ask now that as we come to you, that you would draw near and instruct us in your word. We pray, our Father, that the entrance of your word would bring light to our hearts and our minds, that we might be instructed on who you are and what you are like. 
that we might trust in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that we might find in him eternal life. It is our desire, O God, that you would be glorified amongst us this morning. It is our desire that we would be changed by the power of your Spirit as we believe your Word. So come now, we ask, be glorified amongst us. Bless the ministry of your Word for Jesus' sake. Amen. When it comes to the Christian life, it's important to understand that there is never a neutral place. You're never merely standing still as a Christian. You're either making progress or you're losing ground. The New Testament is replete with warnings about this, exhortations regarding this, concern for the effects of sin in our lives, and a desire for us to pursue righteousness are all over the New Testament. There's always the danger of erosion and decay, and there is always the importance of progress and growth. Paul warns us about this in his letter to the Galatians, where he speaks of the battle of the Spirit warring against the flesh, and the flesh warring against the Spirit. He tells us in Romans that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. He tells us that if we sow to the flesh, we will reap its outcome. If we sow to the Spirit, we will reap everlasting life. You see, sin pays out a painful and destructive dividend that we need to be aware of as the people of God, and we must continually contend with. Thankfully, where there is repentance and where there is trust in the Lord, there is growth and there is progress, and there is blessing, and there is benefit. This transformation of character, this change of mind, this change of our affections, this change of our choices, is what God intends for us as we are conformed to the likeness of Jesus. It's good to know, isn't it? It's important to understand that the God who judges sin is also the God who forgives sin. He's also the God who renews us and restores us when we fail, when we fall. And this morning, as we continue in Joel, I want us to see this morning this whole theme of restoration and renewal as it is revealed to us here by the prophet as he speaks to Judah in his day. I want us to see from our passage this morning the mercy and the grace of Almighty God to the repentant and believing sinner. This morning, as we turn to Joel's word, we see here that there is a change in the direction of his preaching. He has spent some time, as we've already seen in our opening two considerations, he spent some time dealing with the judgment of God and a call to repentance. Difficult subjects, uncomfortable subjects, necessary subjects nevertheless. But now he turns to address the issue of the outcome of heeding the warnings about judgment and the call to repentance. And he speaks to the issue then of restoration and 
renewal. And in verses 18 through 32 of Joel chapter 2, there are two points that I want us to think about this morning. I want us to consider the restoration that is promised, and then I want us to look at the renewal that is foretold. The restoration that is promised and the renewal that is foretold. One of them particularly applies to Joel's day. The other applies to days yet future from Joel. And we'll see days that particularly pertain to when we are alive upon the earth. So let's look first of all then at the restoration that is promised. And we find this in our portion of Scripture in verses 18 through 27. Verse 18 marks this turning point in Joel's ministry. Notice, then, that is, after all that I've said here uh, regarding uh, judgment, regarding lamentation because of sin, and regarding the need for repentance, then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. We've seen up to this point Joel's concern to instruct the people on why it is that these locusts had come upon them. They had violated God's covenant. They had disobeyed the Lord. And remember, God's covenant with Moses was a covenant that said, obey me, you'll be blessed. Disobey me, you'll be punished. So they disobeyed and punishment came upon them. Now God's mouthpiece, the prophet, is standing up declaring to the people uh, the reality of the judgment of God and the need to lament for their sin and to turn from their sin. And as that happens, we find then the Lord hears them and steps in and begins to turn things around. The Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. Notice, first of all, that we see here the source of of the mercy and the grace of God to his people. The source of the mercy and the grace of God. Joel emphatically declares to Judah, the Lord has become jealous for his land and has pity upon his people. The prophet is bringing Israel afresh, Judah afresh, to face the character of their God. What do we learn about God in this particular verse? We learn two things about God. We learn that God is jealous and God is compassionate. God is jealous for the land and he has pity on the people. Now, this would be a a, a message of encouragement for the people in the light of everything that they've already been told. In the light of the fact that they've been told that they're under the judgment of God, that the locusts have come as a result of their disobedience, uh, it would come as an encouragement, having been told that you need to lament and repent. Now they're told, God has heard. And God is responding. And Joel tells them, first of all, that God is jealous for the land. Now, what's the land? The land of Canaan, of course, chosen by God to be the inheritance of his old covenant people, promised through his covenant with Abraham centuries before. Now, it might surprise you this morning to think about God as being jealous, right? You might think, well, jealousy, is that not a sin? Yes, in certain contexts it is, but not in every context. A husband should be jealous for the protection of his wife and his wife's good name. A wife should be jealous for her husband at that level. 
Jealousy is not always wrong. It depends on the context. And here we see that jealousy is referred to in regards to the character of God. He's jealous for the land. Now, what does it mean that God is jealous for the land? I think that what Joel is really communicating to us here is this, that God is concerned about his name, and God is concerned about his glory, and God is concerned about the nature of his faithfulness. Because what has he promised? He's promised that this land would be blessed by him, and it would be a land of plenty, a land of sustenance for his people. Now he has sent the locusts, and they have created devastation in the land. And so now uh, the, 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 the nation is open to the reproach of the nations, and God is concerned that this judgment that he's brought upon Judah would not be permanent but rather there would be restoration. Restoration because God is jealous for the land. He is concerned for His glory and His name and how He is dealing with the land according to His covenant promise. You see, here we see that the prophet is speaking of his concern about the character of God, about the faithfulness of God. Israel had disobeyed God. Israel was suffering the judgment of God. Israel was now open to the reproach of the nations. God was concerned about this. And so Joel tells them, the Lord is hearing your cries. He's hearing your repentance. He's seeing your repentance, and he is jealous for his land. What does that mean? He's going to restore things. He's going to restore things. And why is he going to restore things? Well, because he's a compassionate God. Notice what the text says. He has pity on his people. He's looking upon his disobedient people that he's entered into covenant with, who he's judged strongly by the locusts, and he sees them now lamenting over their sin, heeding the word of God, repenting from their sin. And what is God's heart towards them? Mercy. Mercy. Here is the compassion of God put on display for us. Here is God's love, if you will, set before us in this text. And Joel is reminding the people here of, first of all, the character of God. It is God who is the source of all mercy, of all grace. It is God who is jealous for his land because he's a faithful God and who has pity on his people because he is good and he loves his people. And now he is about to restore his people as they have lamented over their sin and turned from their sin. How important it is for us in these days in which we live to understand who God is and what God is like. Vitally important for us to understand the impact of our view of God in our lives. We've seen that God is just and holy and righteous, haven't we, in the judgment that he brought. It's a very fearful picture, isn't it? We've looked at the terror of the day of the Lord, and there's a a side to God that that should terrify us, and that indeed should cause us to tremble. But there's also this side of God that we need to see as well, the goodness of God, and the love of God, the mercy of God, and the grace of God. 
We see here, don't we, the, the fact that he is a God of faithfulness. He's jealous for his land that he has promised to bless. And he is going to make sure then that his, his faithfulness is put on display regarding his covenant. He said, if you walk in obedience, I'll bless you. If you walk in disobedience, I'll curse you. So they walked in disobedience. They were cursed. Now they're repenting. They'll be blessed. God is faithful. What God says he will do, God does. How important that is for us, isn't it? Perhaps this morning you're one of those doubters. You're a Christian, but you doubt. You lack assurance. Assurance is a challenging thing for us as Christians at times. I want to encourage you this morning. You can trust God because He is faithful. What He says He will do, He will do. Whether it is in salvation or whether it is in judgment, you can be assured God will be faithful. He is jealous for his name. And he wants you to know that he is faithful and trustworthy. Rest in his promises. And you will find him to be true. But also recognize that he is a God of goodness and compassion. He does not deal with us as our sins deserve. Psalm 103 is one of my favorite psalms. I prayed it for years. The Lord is slow to anger and abundant in mercy. And I'm so thankful he's abundant in mercy. I'm so thankful that that reservoir of mercy is ever flowing down to me. But if our sins were numbered against us, brothers and sisters, who of us could stand? None of us could stand. God is slow to anger, so different from me. Quick to anger. He's slow to anger, but abundant in mercy. Does not give me what I deserve. What do I deserve? Hell. Condemnation. Oh, he doesn't give that to me. Why? Because he is a God of compassion. He has pity upon me. Dear Christian, you need to recognize this. You need to see this. Are you aware this morning of who God is and what God is like? He's a God of great faithfulness and a God of abundant mercy, and a God of extravagant grace, so much so that you have eternal life through believing in His Son. How amazing. How amazing it is. Your view of God, when you get up on Monday morning and you've got to go to work, and you've got a hard meeting, and you know it's going to be difficult, your view of God, oh no, it's going to be a bad day. God's going to judge me. Or is it, no, my God is faithful. My God is merciful. My God is gracious. God loves me. And I can be confident that walking in the love of God, He will be with me. There's a well-known story of one of my Scottish compatriots of another generation. Rabbi Duncan was his nickname. He was the professor of theology at the Free Church of Scotland in Edinburgh in the 1800s. Very well-known man in, the, in his generation. And a little girl once came up to him and asked him a question. She thought, I'm going to ask this man a question, see what his answer is. And she said, what is the last thing you think about at night before you go to sleep? This is a professor of theology and he would tell his students this in his class. He says, this is what I think about when I close my eyes to go to sleep. Jesus loves me 
This I know, for the Bible tells me so. You might have been coming to our discipleship class thinking, this is overwhelming. It's been overwhelming for me, I can assure you. But when you close your eyes, you go to sleep at night, don't be overwhelmed. Remind yourself of the love of God and the wonderful truth of that little children's song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Close your eyes and go to sleep. Resting wholly in the love of God in Christ Jesus, knowing that He is faithful. And so, Joel is bringing God's people afresh to God Himself in order to encourage them in their repentance and in their restoration. And then he begins to open up for them the manifestation of the mercy and grace of God. The source of the mercy and grace of God is God himself. But now we see the manifestation of it recorded here in verses 19 all the way through to 27. It's a lengthy section. I want you to see the three elements of the manifestation of the mercy and grace of God that is revealed to us here in this portion of Scripture. Notice, first of all, that God, that, that Joel says to uh, Judah, there will be a restoration of material blessings. A restoration of material blessings. Now, that would not be insignificant for these people, bearing in mind what's just happened, right? Remember what's just happened? The swarm of locusts has come through and devastated the land. The the, the locusts have cut off the food supply. It affected even their ability to offer sacrifices in the temple. Things have been devastating, disastrous. Now what do we read? Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. Notice what he says to him in verse 22. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. And then we have this wonderful verse. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army, which I sent to you. Restoration of material blessings is promised here to Judah through their repentance. And of course, this is consistent with the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant brought material blessings upon Israel in the land where they were faithful. That's why when you read in the life of Elijah, a very interesting uh, little point uh, whereby there is uh, no rain. You ever wondered why? Why is there no rain? It's not just a weather pattern, right? It's not just a a meteorological issue. It's a covenant issue. The reason why the heavens were closed in Israel during Elijah's time was because Ahab was a bad king, and he violated the covenant, and he brought the judgment of God upon the land. The prophet prays, and the Lord blesses. You see, even the very weather patterns of the land of Canaan in the days of Israel, they were controlled ultimately by God for His covenant purposes. Now, weather patterns are controlled by God all over the world. 
We need to realize that. You say, well, I thought they were scientifically proven. Yes, that's fine. That's the, that's the human explanation, scientifically. But who's behind the weather? Well, you don't need to worry about climate change. There may be climate change. It may go up a degree or two, down a degree or two. You know, they used to grow grapes in Scotland in the 1700s. That's interesting. There's definitely been climate change but not in the hot direction, the cold direction. Now it's heating up again. But who's in control? The American government? The United Nations? I know they think they are, but they're not. God's in control. Don't worry about it. Trust the Lord and look after His creation and know this, that He will finally accomplish His purposes. Don't let your heart be gripped by fear in a day in which apparently the world's going to end by 2030 if we don't get it sorted out. I really hope I'm around in 2030 and I have a list of the names that have said that. Just to remind them how wrong they got it. But here we see the manifestation of the mercy and the grace of God and the restoration of material blessings. And what an encouragement this must have been to these people who were starving, who were, who were facing destitution. Your repentance has brought the restoration of God in His mercy and grace. Verse 20, we read the removal of their enemy. Very clearly, uh, they can be encouraged by the fact that God is removing the northerner far from them. Uh, the, 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 the locusts have been taken away, completely removed. Things can get back to some semblance of normality. We see here again, the Lord has made it very clear. Verse 25, the great army of the locusts were God's army in this situation. And then we come to the recovery of their fellowship with God. The recovery of their fellowship. Look at verse 21. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. And then verse 23. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. And then verses 26 and 27, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. What's the purpose of God here in blessing his people? It's to restore fellowship with them to bring them back into a healthy relationship with himself. Joy and gladness was to mark them. Joy and gladness in their God who had heard their cries, their confession, who had seen their repentance. It was to mark them in their life. Joy and gladness in the Lord. They had suffered judgment. They had gone through hardship. Now their repentance and their faith was recovering them and bringing them into restored fellowship with the Lord. It is the power and the mercy and the power of God's mercy and the power of God's grace. You see, God's power and God's mercy and grace are what we need to understand as He restores His people here. He is being merciful to them. He could have cut them off, but He doesn't. He hears their confession, He sees their repentance and He restores them. We see His grace blessing them again with their material prosperity that they had lost, removing 
that which have been their adversaries from their midst, restoring to them fellowship with the Lord. And so what do we discover here as we think about this? We see here, don't we, that all of this for us as Christians is pointing us in a particular direction, pointing us towards that which is the fulfillment of the old covenant, the Lord Jesus Himself. You see, God's ultimate manifestation of mercy and grace is not found in a piece of real estate in the Middle East. It's found in the person and work of His Son, Jesus Christ. And what does the land of Canaan and the blessing of God represent to us this morning? What does the material restoration and removal of enemies and recovery of fellowship say to us this morning? It says to us that this is temporary and pointing us to that which is ultimate, Jesus Christ. It says that there is indeed mercy and grace with the Lord, but it's not found in looking for a land on earth. It's not found in looking for material blessings on earth. It's not found in looking for deliverance from enemies on earth. It's found in Jesus Christ, because it's in Jesus Christ that all the spiritual blessings of heaven become ours. It's in Jesus Christ that all of our enemies are vanquished. It's in Jesus Christ that we enjoy true fellowship with God. You see, it's Christ through His life, death, and resurrection from, resurrection from the dead. It is through Christ that we come into this eternal relationship with God. I can't offer you here this morning material prosperity. That's not offered in the gospel. You might come to Jesus Christ this morning and tomorrow go to your doctor and find out you've only got three weeks to live. The gospel doesn't offer you material prosperity. It offers you eternal life. There's a world of a difference. The Bible doesn't offer you, or the gospel doesn't offer you an easy life where you'll have no problems. In fact, if you come to Jesus this morning, you're going to get a whole new set of problems that might be even harder than the ones you've got. But it brings you eternal life. And we need to be clear on this because we have a, we have a whole so-called Christianity in America that's nothing other than a prosperity gospel. Offering people froth and bubble. Not dealing with the depth of the problems of their heart, nor giving them reality about the life that we live in under the sun, which is hard. Which is difficult. Now, it's true. We live in the most prosperous nation to ever exist in, the human, in human history. But you know what that means for us? Greater accountability in the sight of God. You don't hear much about this in America, right? We're at the front of the line for the judgment of God because we have been given so much that even if we were to lose 30%, 40%, 50% of what we've got, we'd still have a lot compared to the rest of the world. What we have to see very clearly is this. The gospel is not about your material prosperity. The gospel is not about having an easy life with no problems. The gospel is all about having your sins forgiven through faith in Jesus Christ and receiving the gift of eternal life 
through faith in Jesus Christ. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, I want to be very clear to you. I don't offer you anything that will necessarily make your life here and now better in terms of circumstance. But I do in Christ offer you that which will make your soul right with God. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So important to see where this is all pointing us this morning. Lest we think, well, if I obey, God will give me this and God will give me that. That's, that's the old covenant. The new covenant is a better covenant. It's a superior covenant based on superior promises, but it's about eternal life. It's about being right with God. It doesn't mean your circumstances will be easier or get better necessarily. They might get worse. And it may be this morning that as a Christian, you've become a bit disillusioned by that. You really have become a bit discouraged by that. And it could be that you've begun to fall into that which is all around us. What is it? Materialism. The pursuit of health and wealth. The pursuit of the American dream. Right? We hear a lot about it. I would have to say to you that if you've substituted your pursuit of Christ for the pursuit of the American dream and you're a true Christian, you're backslidden. You're backslidden. You become lukewarm at best. You're in danger. But I want to remind you of this possibility from a very vivid image that is painted for us in the book of Revelation where Jesus is pictured as standing outside the door of the church in Laodicea. Think about that. Jesus is standing outside the door of the church. Now, I know this is often portrayed as a gospel picture. It's actually not a gospel picture. It's a picture about a church that's lost its first love, that's lukewarm and is not fellowshipping with Christ and needs to actually repent and allow Christ back in for fellowship. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, Jesus says. And if any man hears my voice, he says, he's talking to Christians, let him open the door and I will come in and sup with him. It's a call to repentance. Repentance in the church for renewed fellowship with Jesus. My dear brothers and sisters, we need to be aware of the danger of becoming spiritually complacent in a hyper-materialistic culture where we love our stuff and we love our comforts and we love our ease and we love our reputation and we love our uh, pursuits, our hobbies, more than we love Jesus. My dear brothers and sisters, that's not a good place to be. And we need to own this. We need to see this. Where there is renewal, where there is, where there is repentance, where there is confession, there is restoration because God is good and loving and merciful and gracious. And He calls us this morning to be restored. Maybe if you read this text, you realize that for you, you need to be restored regarding the years that the swarming locusts have eaten. The truth be told, maybe you've been cold for decades. Possible. Or you go through the motions, you come to an Orthodox church, you might even carry a big black Bible. 
But that doesn't necessarily mean you're doing well with the Lord. Maybe this morning, this is the opportunity. As you hear about the faithfulness of God, as you hear about the compassion of God, as you hear about the goodness of God and the love of God, maybe this morning it is time to repent and be restored. The Lord delights to restore His people. We see here the restoration that is promised from the prophet Joel. But then we go on and consider, secondly, the renewal that is foretold. And what we have here is really a zooming out, if you will, from the local context to a more global historical context. And in verses 28 through 32, Joel begins to speak to the issue at a global level in terms of God's work of renewal in salvation. And I want you to see three components to this renewal work that is foretold here in these verses. Verses 28 to the end of the chapter. Notice, first of all, there is the foretelling of a future outpouring of the Spirit of God. This is wonderful. This is amazing. Joel reveals that at a future time, in a time yet to come, there will be a great outpouring of the Spirit. And look, look at how universal he describes it as being. I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. You see, the ministry of the Spirit in the Old Testament generally speaking, was confined to the prophets, the priests, and the kings. The Spirit would come upon them to do the work of God. Now we see here that the work of the Spirit is going beyond Israel. It's going global. It's going to the whole world. Sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall be, see visions. Even on the male and the female servants, in those days I will pour out my Spirit. You say to yourself, well, what is he talking about? Well, the wonderful thing is this. We don't have to guess. Turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, one of the greatest sermons in the history of the church. Acts chapter 2 and verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, Acts 2, 14, lifted up his voice. It's a good reminder for preachers. Lifting up their voice. You don't preach, Greg, as if you're sitting in your living room. A little word of encouragement for tonight. Right? If I was mumbling away down here, you'd never even... Well, I know we've got this thing, but you know. He lifted up his voice. Why? So people could hear him. And he addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, right? They were speaking in languages not known, and people are thinking, this is really weird. And They're drunk? No, no, no. Verse 16, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Yeah, I love it when the Bible tells us this is fulfilled here. Save speculation, right? Save stupidity. And in the last days it shall be God declares, and there it is, the very portion that we have read together, right? In Joel chapter 2, Peter is aware of what the prophet Joel had foretold in regards to the future outpouring of the Spirit. Now on the day of Pentecost, he says, that is this. 
That which was foretold is now coming to pass. Coming to pass as a result of what? The life, death, resurrection, ascension, and heavenly session of Jesus sending forth the Spirit on the earth. Here it is. The outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. There's going to be this future outpouring of the Spirit, Joel says. But more than that, Joel also says there's going to be a future cosmic change. Verse 30. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. And we've got this really strange apocalyptic language that is being employed by the prophet, describing issues in the heavens. And again, it's right there in Peter's sermon. What do we, what do we make of this? What are we to understand of this? This cosmic change that's coming about, this cosmic turbulence. Did Peter see uh, these wonders in his day? I don't think so. I think they're talking about something future. And how do we know? Well, we know very clearly in our text, verse 31, when will these cosmic things occur? Before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Some point after the pouring out of the Spirit and the coming of the day of the Lord, there will be this cosmic disruption that's going to happen. Joel speaks of it. Peter makes it clear that it's come now in the age of the Spirit or the Messianic age as it's called. And then there is also then, Joel tells us, in this period of the outpouring of the Spirit and future cosmic change before the day of the Lord, there is this future universal call to salvation. Verse 32, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. During this season, whereby the Spirit has been outpoured before the end of the age, there will be a universal call to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. What is Joel describing for us here? He's describing the age we live in, the messianic age, the age of the Spirit, if you will. Beginning at the pouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, ending at the day of the Lord, telling us that in this period now of redemptive history, all who call on the name of the Lord, they shall be saved. All who hear the gospel and all who believe in Jesus, they shall be saved. Here is Joel describing for us here, by way of prophecy, an age of renewal. And of course, that's exactly what Jesus is about when he comes and declares the arrival of his kingdom by way of its inauguration, as Pastor Steve has been teaching us in Matthew, right? But the consummation is not yet, but the inauguration has come. The Spirit of the Lord has come. The Spirit of the Lord is moving in the earth through the ministry of the gospel, calling out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation a people to the Lord. This is the new creation that has dawned in Jesus Christ. And God is bringing it to consummation. It shall ultimately come to pass. And so here is the prophet Joel bringing to Israel or Judah at this time not only a blessed message of restoration for them under the old covenant, but a glorious renewal of all things under the new covenant. 
And my dear brothers and sisters, listen, we live in the time of renewal and are called to benefit from all the blessings that are promised to us in this time. The promise of a right standing with Almighty God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what's offered to us. The gift of the Holy Spirit, God in us, the hope of glory, that we might be new creations and we might come to the final, ultimate new creation. My dear brothers and sisters, do we really appreciate the blessing of living at this time in redemptive history and the blessings that are ours at this time in redemptive history? We don't have to get a bunch of sheep in here, a bunch of goats in here, slit their throats and take their blood and burn them up. Why? It's all gone because Jesus Christ has come. Once and for all, he has satisfied divine justice and turned away divine wrath that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Not only that, but having gone back to heaven, he and the Father, they sent forth the Spirit upon all sons and daughters that we might prophesy. What does that mean? Tell forth the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes. My dear sister, you have opportunity to be a prophet. Not in the sense that you're speaking direct words from God but in the sense that you have the Word of God revealed in Jesus Christ to speak it. You see, we've lost the meaning of prophesying, really. I'm putting together a little study for some of our men on preaching, and it's based on that wonderful little book by William Perkins, my, one of my favorite, well, he's really the father of Puritanism. He wasn't a Puritan, um, the father of Puritanism, called The Art of Prophesying. Now, he doesn't mean the art of getting up and speaking, thus saith the Lord. He means the art of getting up and proclaiming what the Lord has said. And we've lost that in the modern church because of charismatic confusion. We need to restore it. We need to get it back. This is prophesying, biblically speaking, telling forth the Word of God. And the reality is, my dear sisters, listen to me. Yes, it's true, you can't be an elder and you can't get up and address the whole church. That is part of the mind of God. But I tell you this, you can be an evangelist. You can be telling forth the Word of God to whoever you get in contact with anywhere in the city. Dear mothers, you are prophesying to your children every time you tell them about Jesus. And you have the Spirit to help you and enable you to do just that. And this is one of the great blessings of this time of renewal that has come upon the world through Jesus Christ. And it challenges us, doesn't it? It challenges us then to realize that we should be engaged in this time of uh, blessing and benefit in missions and in evangelism. And we should be taking the word out to the lost and the perishing while there is yet time. And we don't have to be afraid. Because what did Jesus tell his apostles? And lo, I am with you always even to the end of the age. How is Jesus with us this morning? He's with us by His Spirit, the Holy Spirit, whom He has sent into our hearts. 
You see, where is Jesus right now? He's at the right hand of God the Father as a man. Yet he is here also by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we need to recognize this. We need to understand this. We have the blessing of the presence of God in our hearts by the Spirit, because this is what was promised by the prophets. This is the purpose of God for our time. So when you're afraid, and I get afraid, when you're feeling a bit cowardly, and I get cowardly, remind yourself, but I have the Spirit of God. God is with me by His Spirit. He has promised to never leave me nor forsake me. I need to have courage to speak forth the truth as it is in Jesus. How is your neighbor, how is your relative, how is your workmate ever going to get right with God if they never hear about Jesus? The answer is they're not. They're not. They can go and stand and look over the Pacific all they want, and they can be amazed that, wow, this cannot have just happened by chance. There must be some kind of divine being that has created it. And that's true. Divine revel- special uh, general revelation will teach them that, but it will never teach them who Jesus is and what he's come to do. That's only found in the gospel, the special revelation of God. And we, the church, have that revelation, and we are called to take it to the nation. And so, my dear brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you this morning. If you're like me, you have these opportunities from time to time, and a big yellow streak starts to crawl up your back, and you're very aware that yellow streak is there, and it's going to grab you, and it's going to keep your mouth shut. Remind yourself, but I have the Spirit of God. God dwells in me by His Spirit, and I can be winsomely courageous to speak the truth about Jesus doesn't matter how old you are as a Christian. doesn't matter how long you've been on the road. You can explain. God is holy. God is righteous. Man is sinful, deserving of judgment. God has sent Jesus Christ into the world to save us from our sins. And whosoever believes in him and turns from sin shall be saved. There it is. Gospel presentation, prophesying the word of the Lord to your neighbor, to your relative, even to one of your adversaries at work with fear and trepidation. This is the promise. We live in this time of renewal. We live in this time when these blessings are available to us by the Spirit. We need to understand this. We need to be convinced of this. It is this that took John G. Payton to one of the remotest parts of the Pacific Ocean to bring the gospel to the nation. It was this that caused Jim Elliot to go to Ecuador to die on the banks of the Curare River that sinners might be saved. It was this that took William Carey to India, and for seven years he saw no converts until God began to save. It's this that has taken Kyle and Hannah to South Africa to bring the Word of God It is this that motivates Kyle when it comes to his Bible translation. His desire to have the Word of God in the language of those that are reading it so that the Spirit of God can bring life where there is death, can bring light where there is darkness, and cause them to trust in Jesus. My dear brothers and sisters, we live, I believe, at the best time in redemptive history. The Messianic 
age, the age of the Spirit, heading for the consummation of all things. And this is what Joel foretells. This is the renewal that is being foretold, that which is to come. And how do we know? Peter tells us what Joel said, this is it now, happening upon the earth. So as we reflect on the ministry of the prophet Joel this morning, isn't it wonderful that we can be sure that the God with whom we have to do restores? And the God with whom we have to do, He renews. That's good news, isn't it? It's good news. doesn't matter who you are this morning. doesn't matter where you're at this morning. If you're turning from sin and trusting in Christ, there is restoration, there is renewal with the Lord. It should engender hope. It should grant, bring joy to all who are believing. It should encourage you to know that you have power by the Spirit to live for the glory of God. To live for the glory of God in such a way that you can overcome the flesh. You can overcome the world. You can overcome the devil because of Christ and His Spirit within you. So let us glory this morning, dear brothers and sisters, not in ourselves, but in our God, the God who restores, the God who renews, confident that this God who restores, this God who renews, He is a faithful God. He is a merciful God, and He does good to all who trust in Him through His Son. Amen. Let's pray. Father, how amazing it is for us to consider the words of the prophet Joel. When we think of his encouragement to his generation, when we think of what you revealed to him regarding what you would yet do centuries later. Here we are, even centuries beyond the Apostle Peter's sermon at Pentecost, and we are indeed the recipients of these great truths that we might behold you, the true and the living God, a God of faithfulness, a God of mercy and grace, a God of love and goodness, we bless you and we praise you this morning, that you are the God who restores, you are the God who renews, and that as we trust in you, our Father, so you grant us your presence and power through your Spirit. May it be this morning that as we go from this place, our confidence would not be in ourselves, but in you, the true and the living God, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, that we might walk in the power of the Spirit, that we might not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.